right. It is February the 10th, 2023. That makes this solder smoke 243. Guys, it's kind of different this morning. Uh, it's, it's a solo edition, but it's only this way because Pete himself has insisted that the show must go on. Pete had some, um, some Skype problems this morning and couldn't make it. And it's hard, very hard for him to carve out time from his very demanding family schedule. So uh, reluctantly, I've agreed to go ahead and try to do a solo show. This will be like the old days. It's not going to be anywhere near as good. We're definitely miss, missing Pete, but um, he insisted. He said the show must go on. We've been getting emails from uh, Solder Smoke listeners demanding, <laughs> pleading with us to do another podcast. So here we are with 243. We begin with a, a travelogue uh, again. Suddenly I have something to report in the travel area. I spent the month of January in the Dominican Republic, where the temperature was about 80 degrees most of the time with the sea breeze. The coldest it gets down there is about 70 degrees or about 20 degrees C. When it hits 20 degrees C, a lot of the Dominicans start talking about how cold it is at, at 70 degrees Fahrenheit, believe it or not. We were on the eastern tip of the island, a place called Capcana. We were down there for, uh, for a month, for the full month of January. You could do this when you retire. And we were down there. It was a combination of getting out of the cold, uh, family reunion, and, and taking care of, uh, of Elisa's mom. Also, it's very good for Elisa to get back. This is her home country. So it was good for her to get back to the Dominican Republic. And we are in the process of preparing what we are calling Solder Smoke Shack South, um, which will be the, uh, an apartment that we're building in the Capcana area. It'll be ready by the summer. And the shack... It looks like the shack that I'm getting in at the new location will be even bigger than the palatial shack I occupy here in Northern Virginia. So we're very happy about that. I brought some ham radio gear with me. I brought a micro bidex transceiver and some dipoles. Getting getting ready for the uh, the move to Solder Smoke Shack South. I deliberately filled up a, a suitcase with ham radio gear, more than the usual amount of ham radio gear that I would bring to the Dominican Republic because I was going to leave this suitcase there. This would be the first shipment of, of radio gear to the south. So I brought with me a, a micro bit X, a bunch of tools, some test gear, uh, and a lot of antenna materials. And I decided I would get on the air from, from Capcana. And it was, it was an interesting experience. It was more difficult than I expected. I put up a 20-meter dipole, and I also experimented with some 20-meter N-fed half-wave antennas fed with a tuner. But I wasn't having a whole lot of luck. I started out on 20 sideband, made some contacts, but I was getting reports back that there was kind of RF getting into the audio. You've all heard this. Um, and it was quite possible that be with the micro X sitting as it was underneath the 20-meter dipole, that some RF was getting into the audio. So I switched over to CW, and I made a few contacts on 20CW, on 17CW. And, you know, my I'm not much of a CW guy anymore, but I did it, and it was fun to make the contacts. But then, later on, I started thinking, well, what about 10 meters? Let's give 10 meters a try, because I was reading on the Internet that a lot of people were using 10 meters, and the conditions were a lot better on that band. So I pulled down the 20-meter dipole and basically cut it, cut the dimensions for 10 meters. I had a shortwave, I had an SWR bridge with me, 
and I could see that I had cut it just right. The uh, the SWR was about right. So I got on on 10 meters, and with sideband and CW, I could tell from the SWR bridge that the uh, output was quite low from the micro bit X. I didn't realize how low until I got back to the States and measured the output on, on 10 meters, and it was really too low. It was down in the one watt range on, on 10 meters, but still at one watt in, on 10 meters, I was making some pretty good contacts on 10 meters CW, which was, which was a lot of fun. I made a lot of contacts. During the course of the month down there, I probably made 30 or 40 contacts, something like that. I also managed to work, because I alerted them uh, via email, I worked uh, one member of the Vienna Wireless Society, my home radio club, Mike, KA4CDN, and I also worked our old friend down in Orlando, Walter, KA4KXX. Both of these I worked on 20CW. I moved back to 20 to make these contacts shortly before we left the island. Um, I, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. It was, it was definitely a lot of fun working those two gentlemen. When I got back from the DR, I came back with the Microbitex. Everything else stayed in the island, but the Microbitex came with me because I had it in mind to do something to kind of remedy the problems that I had observed down there. First, for the uh, RF getting into the audio, I, I shielded it. I, I built, uh, I took some copper tape and covered the interior of the wooden box with copper tape that I could ground. And I think this has helped, I think this has helped with the RF getting into the audio problem. Um, the other thing I'm trying to address, and I'm, I'm kind of in the middle of this now, is I'm trying to address the problem of uh, low audio, low, low RF output at higher frequencies. This is a good example of how you should read and research before you start melting solder. I guess it's a kind of a, a corollary to the to the to the lesson I learned a long time ago: design, then build. This is kind of research, then repair. And I just looked at the microbit X that has two IRF 510s in the output, and I just sort of concluded, aha, the problem is that those RF, IRF 510s don't work too well at higher HF frequencies at 28 megahertz. So I, I got a couple of RD06HHF1 uh, MOSFETs from Motorola that have kind of a a six watt output all the way up through uh, through through ten through um, through ten meters, and I said, "Well, I can put those into the uh, into the microbit X, and everything will be fine, right?" So I went through the problem through the trouble of taking the IRF five tens out and then putting the RD zero six HHF one MOSFETs in. I know that some of you are thinking, aha, Bill forgot about the different pinout on the Motorola transistors. No, I, I, I did remember that. I think Pete had talked to us about that. So I made sure that I put them in properly with the source grounded, not the drain grounded. Grounded. I got them in there, and it just didn't fix the problem. As a matter of fact, it, it introduced additional problems. It introduced all kinds of problems with, uh, with feedback. The output was a real mess. And when I did get it tamed, sort of, I discovered that the output was still quite low, quite similar to what I found with the IRF-510s. I then did what I should have done at the beginning, and I went and started looking at what some 
of the the real authorities on this this transceiver have said about it, especially Allison uh, KB1 uh, GMX. I think it is. Jeez, excuse me if I get the call sign wrong there, Allison. But boy, Allison is an authority on this stuff, and she has worked on the microbitx, and she wrote that the problem is not with the IRF 510s, that the IRF 510s, if driven properly, are good up into the VHF range, something I didn't know. She looked at the IRF 510 carefully, looked at the microbitics carefully, and concluded that the problem was in the driver and the pre-driver stages. The driver, the, 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 the driver stages use, use 2N3904 transistors. And she said she recommended replacing these with uh, 2N2222As in the metal TO18 cans. She recommended a couple of other changes also, changing the, um, um, the pre-driver and changing some of the emitter resistors and some of the capacitors in there. So I'm in the process of doing that. I've obtained the 2N2222As. I'm ready to put those in. And uh, she also recommended changing the pre-driver, and she recommended one which she referred to as really hot transistor. Um, the problem is that that is a, a surface mount device. It's really tiny, and I'm kind of I'm hesitant to do that because I know that I'm not good with surface mount transistors. We all have to recognize our own preferences and 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 strengths and weaknesses. Um, so I'm gonna. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna first try changing the the two N thirty nine oh fours to two N twenty two twenty two A's, changing the value of the uh, emitter resistances on that, and we'll see how much power additional power out I get from making this change. If it's enough, then I might just uh, avoid having to change the surface mount uh, preampli uh, the pre driver transistor. But we'll see. I'm prepared to, to, to dive into the surface mount area, perhaps not drink quite as much coffee as I do in the morning, and uh, see if I have to see if I change that. But um, anyway, I can, um, I'll, I'll be working on that. And it, it is kind of an interesting follow up to my experiences on the Dominican, in the Dominican Republic with the, the microbitex. Um, I, I have one, one question to ask the group. I, I, over the years, has, have, be, have kind of operated here what I refer to as the Bidex Orphanage. So several guys, I would say maybe even many guys, have received Bidexes over the years and for, for a variety of reasons have decided that they didn't want to do the Bidex thing anymore and they send the Bidex to me. I, I've really been very grateful to receive these. Some of them have been Bidex 40 modules, a few of them have been microbitx transceivers, the complete board. Now, I have a microbitx that Farhan sent me years ago when it first came out. That's the one that I took with me to the Dominican Republic. It's a version 3 bitx, version 3 microbitx. But here's the thing. Somebody else sent me another version 3 microbitx. And I... I feel bad about this, but I don't have any record showing who it was that sent it to me. Often I'll mark the package with who sent it to me. That way I'll know, and I can thank the person. But if you sent me a microbitx, please shoot me an email and let me know it was you. I have some suspects in mind, but I don't know who for sure 
So let me know. Let me know who sent this to me because I am trying to get this one going also. And so when I work up first, when I work on the one that, that Farhan sent me, I'll get that one going. And if, if it's necessary, then I'll, I'll modify the other one in the same way and get it going. I am, I've already kind of prepared for work on the second one. I've used the Antuino, another device that Farhan sent me. I've used his Antuino to measure the passband on the crystal filter in that particular microbit X. And it's a little bit different from the one in the in the first microbit X transceiver. So that, that helps me know where to place the BFO when I get this thing actually going. But I faced an obstacle in getting the second one going. I used to be fairly proficient at loading software into the Arduino that goes along with the SI5351 chip that is the heart of the MicroBitX transceiver. Um, but it's been several years since I've done this. I pulled out the one, the MicroBitX that somebody sent me, and it has the original Raduino software in it, which most people abandoned pretty quickly. And they replaced it, as I did with the first one, with KD8CEC software. Um, I want to do that with the second one. I want to have the same software package in there. I think it's version 1.2 of the KD8CEC software. That's what I have in the, in the, in the MicroBitX that Farhan sent me, the first one. I want to have the same software in the second one. So I made an attempt and I, I didn't have a lot of hope with this, that I went to the computer and I tried to load the KD8CEC software into the second MicroBitX, and I failed miserably. But wisdom, you get older, you get smarter. I decided, cut my losses, stop. Don't even try to figure this out. Don't get a headache. Don't get frustrated. Put it back in the bag and give it to somebody who knows what they're doing in this area. And fortunately, I know a guy who knows what he's doing in this area, and that's Dean, KK4DAS, the president of the Vienna Wireless Society. I gave it to him yesterday and said, Dean, help me, help me. Please put the KD8CEC software into this Arduino SI5351 uh, combination. And he, I'm pleased to say, agreed to do it. So I'm looking looking forward to that. Um, you know... Um, let me just make a couple observations on being on CW after a long absence from CW. Um, of course, I, I always say I'm, I'm more of a phone guy and I've become a more, more of a phone guy as time has gone on. And I found that I didn't really like the CW that much, but I've noticed something else. And it, this may be me becoming kind of a, an older guy and saying, you know, get off of my lawn all that kind of stuff. And I don't mean to be grouchy about this, but I did seem to notice, and I've, I've seen other people comment on this, that the operating practices and skills of some of the CW operators seems to have deteriorated. And you notice all kinds of weird stuff, like guys will not transmit K. So you don't know quite know when they're finished. Normally they'll give the call sign of the station calling, DE, their call sign, K, invitation to transmit. But I would find myself calling CQ, and then I would hear another call sign in the headphones. But I wouldn't hear my call sign. I would suspect that this guy's calling me. You know, this is what happens on phone a lot. You call CQ, 
Somebody comes on the frequency and just says their call. And okay, you, you, you're not quite sure, but you call them and sure, sure enough, you find out they were calling you, but they have neglected to send your call. And the other thing they neglect to do on, on CW these days is they don't send the letter K. So you don't know whether they're finished yet. You don't know whether they're going to send their call again or what, or are they inviting you to transmit? So I think the, the, the use of the prosigns DE and K have uh, kind of gone away. It's almost as if the CW operators are trying to, to work CW the way they would work phone, which is odd because I noticed that you know some of the phone operators at times will try to act like CW operators. You'll, always, you'll hear guys on phone when they're trying to laugh saying, hi, hi, which I think is really strange because you're using CW pro signs for laughter when you could just be you know laughing into the microphone. But again, I don't mean to be grouchy. Here's the other thing. My call sign in the Dominican Republic, thank you, Dominican Radio Club, Club, Club de Radio Aficionado Dominicano, Club, Club de Radio Dominicano. Thanks to those guys, I have my Dominican license. My call sign by the Dominican Telecommunication Authorities at this point was HI7 stroke N2CQR. I found that some of the CW operators seemed to be unable to understand the, the pro sign for stroke, da, 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 you know, some people call that shave and a haircut because it sounds like shave and a haircut, da, 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 and they would misunderstand this. And so I, it was clearly a case where they were getting, they were receiving my signal, but I would send them my call sign, HI7 stroke N2 CQR and CW, and they would like come back with question, 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 or then they would come back with just the U.S. portion of the call sign, N2 CQR. I got the feeling, and I could be wrong, that some of these guys just didn't know what the slash sign was for or what it was in CW. Um, and I guess this might be a, a, a symptom of what I, what I mentioned before, kind of deteriorating CW skills on the handbands. But I could be wrong. If you guys are more, 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 more familiar with CW out there, recent experience with CW, please let me know if you've noticed this this kind of, of of trend but it it was fun operating down there it was fun operating with the microbitx i was powering it with a little lipo cell about the size of a pack of cigarettes it was great and it was also fun to watch the construction of solder smoke shack south the apartment we could see from the the neighborhood that we were living in we were in an airbnb down there but just across the way we could see the apartment house under construction so it will be will be fun to go down there and set up the shack 10 meters beckons my friends 10 meter conditions are 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 really getting a lot better and i i look forward to getting on to 10 perhaps with the micro bit x after i do i do the mods um i'm also starting to think about what kind of antenna i'm going to put up on top of the apartment house so a lot of things to think about as we get ready to move down to Solder Smoke Shack South. We'll probably be spending a good portion of the winter months, maybe January, February, and March down there, um, starting next winter, um, and because the apartment will be ready by then. So uh, stay tuned. It's going to be it's going to be fun. It'll be it'll be exciting. All right. At this point, Pete was going to talk about his adventures with the TR7. 
but we'll we'll leave that for the next episode. And this brings us to what Pete would remind me is the uh, the shameless commerce division. This is the same shameless commerce portion of the show. And what I would encourage people to do now is is become patrons of Solder Smoke. We've had a number of people sign up and become patrons through the Patreon system. You'll notice in the upper left-hand corner of the blog page, there are links to our Patreon page. And Patreon is a good way to support the show, and I'm really grateful for the large number of people who have signed up to become Solder Smoke patrons. And one of the things I, I, I try to do with the patrons, and I don't do enough of it, but I promise to do more, is to provide early access or exclusive access to some of the material produced here by the Solder Smoke, <laughs> in Solder Smoke headquarters, Solder Smoke headquarters East. So um, let, me, let, me, let me know uh, if you'd like more of this kind of stuff, but I do encourage you to become a patron, to check out the, uh, the Patreon page, and that's a pretty, pretty painless way to become a Solder Smoke a patron through Patreon. The other thing is please continue to use the um, the links to Amazon. I have it up on the upper right hand. Patreon is up in the upper left. On the upper right hand corner of the Solder Smoke blog page, there is the um, the the link to shopping via Amazon. If you begin your shopping there, then we get credit for it. Cha-ching. You don't have to it doesn't have to be for the specific items that are highlighted up there. I think I have oscilloscopes up there now. But if you go a little bit below the oscilloscopes, you'll you'll see a little kind of a dialogue block and a little go where it says go plug in anything that you want to buy there whatever you whatever it is you're buying you could be buying spectrum analyzers lamborghinis any of the stuff plug it in there hit the go and cha-ching bezos will will send us some money when you eventually decide to buy to buy there also you know we're we're doing the podcast we're doing them as youtube videos also so it's not just audio but you might want to check out the uh, the solder smoke YouTube channel. There's a lot of good videos there and a lot of videos of the more recent podcasts. So so check that out. I think you'll you'll like that also. All right, I have some news to report regarding our direct conversion receiver project. This is a project that really was was launched by Dean KK4DAS, president of the Vienna Wireless Society and a builder a builder of many, many things, starting with the micro, starting with the Michigan Mighty Might a couple of years ago. But the Dean has made amazing progress and has built SSB rigs, DSB rigs, DSB receivers, all kinds of stuff, direct conversion receivers. He started working with a local high school. It's kind of an ex- exclusive high school. It's the Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology here in Northern Virginia. It is probably the best high school in the United States. Admittance to the high school is very competitive. The, the kids are drawn from the Northern Virginia community, which already has a very high level of science and technology expertise. They often come from, well, they come from a variety of different backgrounds, but they share a, a, an interest, a rather intense interest in science and technology, which means that they're they're kind of a good, it's a good environment to talk about the benefits of ham radio and ham radio home brewing. So they're involved in many different things. They're involved in satellite communications. They built and had launched into space a CubeSat, which is super impressive. 
Dean and I went over to talk to them about ways that the kind of the Vienna Wireless Society can, can partner with them. Dean and members of the club ran a technician licensing course. And more than 30 of these kids, these high school students, have received their technician amateur radio licenses, which is, I think, super impressive. So uh, the kids that we were talking to when we went over there last night, and I'll tell you about that in a minute, almost all of them were already licensed radio amateurs, which is a tremendous step forward. Now, what we were talking to them about might strike some of you as kind of strange for a group uh, interested in sort of high technology and science. But Dean and I thought that it would be good to, to talk to them about a doable homebrew project. Now, we thought that a Michigan Mighty Might might be kind of a little small bore for these guys. It might be a little not, not quite enough. We didn't want to overdo it. We didn't want to hit them with a full you know, SSB transceiver. That might be too much. Happy Medium was a simple analog, discrete component, direct conversion receiver. We thought that would be a good project that they could build and they could walk away from it with something that they could actually use. So we pitched it to them several months ago and they seemed quite interested in it. Um, I left one of my DC receivers over there in their club room, which is a pretty impressive workshop. And a number of the kids were really kind of interested in it. So we said, all right, let us work on uh, a design that could be reproduced by the students. And we will lead them through the process of building this. We, the, one of the things we wanted to do is we wanted to make sure that they actually built it. We didn't want to build it for them. We didn't want to provide a kit. We'd, we'd, we'd help the club, their club and their teacher, acquire the components. But the building would be done by them with kind of advice and assistance from us. So this has been in the making now for several months. And um, Dean and I were working on the design of the receiver. We wanted to make sure that we came up with a design first of all, that worked, that wouldn't disappoint them. The second was simple enough so that they could understand what every single component in the receiver does. So analog and discrete components, no kind of mystery boxes in there, no mystery ICs, all discrete components. And we came up with a design that was kind of an amalgam of designs done by many others over the years. I guess one of the big inspirations came from Wes Hayward, W7ZOI, in his original transistorized direct conversion receiver that was published in QST in November 1968. It had a diode ring mixer fed directly from the antenna, uh, followed by an audio amplifier and a very simple oscillator. So that, that provided sort of the, the, the overall architecture of the, the receiver that we were working on. Um, we also were deeply influenced by the work of Ashar Farhan, VU2ESE. Uh, Farhan had developed a, a real simple oscillator for a similar project that he was working with Indian school kids. And his oscillator was so simple. I remember when I first looked at it, I said, that thing can't possibly work. The part count, the parts count was really ridiculously low. I mean, it was like 10 components and very, very simple. The, the, the capacitors in the, uh, 
in the uh, oscillator were the same capacitors. The frequency determining capacitors were also the feedback capacitors. And the frequency variation was carried out not by a variable capacitor, but by essentially a variable inductor, sort of like a, a PTO, like a, a permeability tuned oscillator. There was a coil and there was a brass screw that you would screw in and screw out to change the frequency. So this was simple, easily to, easy to reproduce and easy to obtain parts for. So Dean and I worked with it over the period of several months to, make, to hammer out a design that we think would be useful. We also made use of a point that Farhan often makes in his presentations on home brewing, and that is that there are really just four circuits that are important to home brewers. And those four circuits are a filter, the bandpass filter, the oscillator, the PTO in this case that we built, the mixer, which is really important, the diode ring mixer that we chose, and finally the audio frequency amplifier. So filter, oscillator, mixer, amplifier. And almost all analog rigs are combinations of those four circuits. So that's what we went with. And we built this uh, receiver on four different boards. And our objective is to, to teach the students how to build those four boards and have them build it. Last night, we had our first session with the students on this project. We only had about an hour or two with them total, maybe an hour and a half, two hours. It was their club session after a demanding day at school, and that would be followed by a demanding night of homework for these guys. They're, they live demanding lives. But what Dean and I said was that we, we, we realized that we can't just throw this at them and say, here, build a receiver. At least the first session had to be us demonstrating how to use the Manhattan construction technique to build one of these boards. So we, we came in yesterday, we made a quick presentation on the kind of the overall structure, the theory behind a direct conversion receiver. What do we mean by direct conversion? And then we said, let's talk a little bit about the oscillators because that's the part we're going to build first. We're going to build the oscillator first. And we explained to them in very basic terms how an oscillator works, how feedback works, how frequency is determined, what the resonant frequency is, how we do that. We also talked to them a little bit about what Manhattan, constru Manhattan style construction is. We said that this would be important to them because for the first time in their lives, they would be designing a printed circuit, what is essentially a printed circuit board. And this would help later on when they were doing much more advanced printed circuit board de design using uh, KiCad and other software packages. But now we're keeping it real simple. We're, we're cutting out pieces of PC board and super gluing them onto a copper clad base. We needed to demonstrate this. So Dean and I decided that in this first session, we would split the group into two groups and have them gather around two different workbenches. Dean would take one group, I would take the other. And then we would talk them through the actual building of the oscillator for the receiver. So we, we, we arrived, and, and I had my my uh, toolbox and the parts. Dean had his tool his tools and a parts and parts. We had soldering irons, and we gathered the students around. And I said, "Okay, this is how we do this." 
You know, in a lot of other places, the students would quickly grow bored with the whole thing. That, that wasn't the case at the school. The students were really deeply interested. Now, we told them and kind of warned them. We said, pay attention to what we're doing because next week you all are going to do this with us just walking around helping, helping you. But you're going to have to do it yourself next week. So we demonstrated things like how to cut a PC board with, you know, tin shears, how to make the pads, how to figure out where you're going to need pads, how to design the board, how to super glue the pads to the copper clad board, and finally, how to put components onto the pads on the copper clad board. Now, we knew that there would be kind of a grand finale to this first session. And the grand finale would be when we powered up these oscillators and let the students realize that they had just built something that was creating RF. We, some of the guys in the Vienna Wireless Club were, were skeptical. They said, oh, and, and you think that these things are going to work when you do it this way? And Dean and I had built several of these oscillators I had built two complete receivers. Dean had built two complete receivers. We had even done dry runs on, on how to build the oscillator. The oscillators had worked. We had had hams all around the world reproducing these kinds of, these receivers using our schematic. Um, Rick, N3, FJZ, Walter, KA4, KAX, Daniel, VE5, DLD, Stephen, VK2, BLQ, and others had actually built this receiver and so we knew that these that the circuit would work it had been confirmed by many builders around the world and we especially knew that the, the that the oscillator would work because we had built it each three four times two three times actually but still you know it's scary when you're doing this in front of an audience of 15 or 20 eager kids and you you're doing this and you you know, I'm, I'm used to soldering components and building things. I'm not used to doing it in front of an audience under time pressure. It was, I felt like I was on the great British baking show or something. It was, it was kind of scary, but the kids were very helpful. And I went ahead and built this thing with them watching again, telling them, okay, pay attention because next week you're going to do it yourself. So we went through the whole process, everything from cutting the board to size, cutting out the pads, gluing the pads down. And then we went with the schematic and said, all right, here, let's put all the components in, the biasing network, the emitter resistor, the varactor at the power supply, the you know resonant frequency on the base of the transistor, and then finally in goes the 2N3904. We power it up. I described to them what a smoke test was. I said, look, if smoke comes out after I hook up the battery, that's not a good thing. We will have failed the smoke. We passed the smoke test, and then it we, we kind of had to to demonstrate to them that it was actually producing RF. Now, I, we had, a, we had a, an oscilloscope that was given to us or loaned to us by the school, and I could see the trace there, and I could say to say the students, look, look there on the screen, there it is, there it is, look, I'm touching, there it is. But I could tell that they were not, they were not really kind of impressed by that. So I had brought with me, and thank God I did, I brought with me a shortwave receiver with a BFO, my DX390 receiver. <laughs> I just threw it in the bag as I walked out the door. So I said, quick, give me that receiver. We pulled the receiver out. It took me a couple minutes to figure out where we were in frequency. But as I'm tuning, all of a sudden, whoop, a very strong signal coming from it. The students were impressed with that. But they were I could tell that they were thinking that this was somehow I was just connecting 
the receiver to the oscillator. And I, I was telling them, no, the oscillator is emitting RF. And here, so I took the receiver and I handed it to one of the students. I said, now walk around the workshop with this thing on. And he's walking around. He's got the thing in his hand and it's receiving the signal. He goes to the other end of the workshop. I said, look, I'm going to turn it off. No more signal. All right. So it was a big success. And I thank Dean for putting it together and working with the school and the teacher to make this happen. I think we're off to a good start. Uh, next week, we're going to meet, and the students will have div been divided up into 15 groups. We have enough parts right now to build 15 receivers. So the students are going to be in groups of three or four, and uh, three or four students, and together they will build the receiver. And we're going to try to do, do, do it stage by stage using the four stages that Farhan described. We're going to have to see how long it takes them to build these stages. Um, I told them, I said, when you're doing this, it's kind of, you can't dawdle. You have to get to it, right? It's sort of like the old admonition, make haste slowly. Don't waste time. Get the components on the board. And so in this way, a project that could take a full day can be completed in an hour. So we're, we're hoping that, that they will do this. The, the PTO stage is, is one of the two kind of complex stages of the four stages, the other being the audio frequency amplifier. The other two stages, the, uh, the bandpass filter and the mixer, although they involve winding toroids, uh, are, are really less complicated, fewer components on the boards. So we're going to have to see how long it takes to get this done. But I think that at the end of this thing, we're going to end up with, with 15 direct conversion receivers for 40 meters that the students can then use to modify, to improve on, to listen to, to take home, uh, to, to, to decode FT8 and other digital signals that are coming through. So we think it'll be exciting for them. And we've told them that, that even if they never build anything again, at least once in their lives, they will have done something that the vast majority of radio amateurs never do, and that is build a receiver. You will have built a receiver. And I, I think they were um, kind of impressed. They were kind of uh, pleased that I pointed out that what they were doing is difficult. I put the John F. Kennedy quote about, we go to the moon and do the other thing, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. And I then followed up, I put on the screen the kind of the, the, the derivation of, of that or the, uh, the deviation from that a little bit where they said, we do this thing not because it's easy, but because we thought it would be easy. <laughs> but they got a, they got, I think they got a chuckle out of that. So um, anyway, we were really pleased that both Dean and I got the, um, the oscillators to oscillate to produce RF. This also kind of gave the students, and will give the students next week, something of that Michigan Mighty Might experience that's important, that, that it builds confidence. If you can build a circuit that actually produces RF, it increases your confidence in your ability to produce circuits that do other things, all right? So producing the RF, this is what happened with Dean when he first built the Michigan Mighty Might. That was really his first project, and it increased his, in confidence, his confidence in his ability to build other things. So we're, we're hoping that by doing the oscillator first, 
the students will have kind of a little bit of the, the uh, or a bit of the, the, the Michigan Mighty Might experience wrapped into the direct conversion receiver project. I've got a lot of the, um, the, um, the, 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 the information about this particular receiver up on the Solder Smoke blog. You can look for it in the recent postings, or you could just search for, uh, the, which the search term is TJ space, DC space, RX space. That's a search search block up on the blog. You could look at it. There's about 16 different articles there where I talk about the, the evolution of the design, the testing of the design, people who've built it in different parts of the world, and, um, and how, it's, how the project is going. So um, thanks to Wes. Thanks to Farhan. Also, I want to thank the Herring Aid 5. Um, that was a receiver that I built a long time ago. The audio frequency amplifier in this receiver is sort of derived from, from the Herring Aid 5. Um, we're, we're, uh, we're having fun with it. And I think we're also trying to relate what we do here to what the students are learning in other areas. So, for example, when I was describing how the mixer worked, I, I just gave them a little preview. I said, hey, look, with the mixer, there's a Fourier transform going on in there, all right? And you could see they kind of looked up and they said, wow, you know, this might have been the first time that anybody pointed out to a real-world application of something that they had probably looked at in math class, the Fourier transform. So um, we're, ha we're having a lot of fun with it. Um, I will keep you posted in, in future podcasts about what's happening with, with, this, with this project. Hey, a few, other things, a few things, other kind of miscellaneous stuff that I want to mention before we get to the, to the mailbag. First, um, a book that I picked up, Open Circuits. <laughs> this is the book where they take and they chop components open and they take kind of high def pictures of what electronic components look like when you chop them open and look inside. When I first read about this, I was skeptical. This was like, it's like a coffee table book for electronic enthusiasts. And I'm thinking, I don't know. I don't know if I need it, need that. But during the winter, Elisa and I were in a bookstore. We we're in a Barnes and Noble, just browsing around for books. And I saw the Open Circuits book there. So, of course, I was curious, and I picked it up, and I just randomly opened it up to a page. The page that the book opened to was the 2N3904 transistor. And I just looked at Elisa, and I said, sold, American. It's sold. Man, this thing is sold. I got to get this book, because the radio gods have spoken. If the random page I selected was probably one of my most frequently used transistors and loved transistors, the 2N3904. Boom, I got to get it. So I got the book and it is really instructive. There's a lot of interesting stuff in there. So if you're looking for a gift or something to put on your gift list or somebody's got to buy you a birthday present or something, open circuits. It's uh, it's I have information up on the Solder Smoke blog. Um, let's see, there's an, another book I want to mention. It's called um, Losing the Nobel Prize. I have it. I have it here. This is another thing I picked up at the same Barnes and Noble by, by a fellow named uh, Brian Keating, and he describes the efforts to kind of confirm the inflation theory of the universe, cosmic bi micro microwave background. It's it's interesting, and it's a book that's interesting to radio amateurs. He actually mentions Joe Taylor. K1JT, the guy who invented Whisper software and all the other software that's being used in the digital realm, he's mentioned in here. 
um, polarization, the, 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 the structure of electromagnetic waves, the building of telescopes, Galileo, Galileo's uh, 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 adventures. Other people that I'm, uh, another person I know, Martin Rees, Lord Martin Rees is, is, Lord Rees is mentioned in the book. And um, it's, it's, just, it's just really interesting. Uh, so I, I got this. And it's related to the, the dish that Penzias and Wilson used to discover the cosmic microwave back, background re- re- radiation, the, the remnants of the Big Bang. Um, and they, they did it because they, in what I think was one of the kind of the most interesting troubleshoots in history, they, they were trying to figure out why this microwave antenna in, I think, Homedale, New Jersey, was producing so much noise. At one point, they thought it was basically bird droppings in the antenna horn. So they went in there and cleaned out the bird droppings and found that the noise was still there. So can you imagine, you start out thinking that the problem is caused by bird droppings, and then you discover at the end of the process that what you're hearing is in fact noise, the, 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 microwave, the remnants of microwave radiation from uh, the Big Bang, the, the beginning of the universe. That's quite, a, quite a, a leap to go from bird poop to the Big Bang. Wow. He, he talks about that. He gives a lot of background. He's got a real, I would say he's got a knack for explanation, how he explains things. Or it's really quite, quite good, quite strong. So I recommend that. And also there's now a movement, and I have this on the blog, Save the Antenna. So this antenna is out there in New Jersey. I guess it's, it's close to Bell Labs, close to New York City. And there's a movement afoot to... Uh, to take the antenna down and use the land for something else. So uh, a petition drive has been started to save the antenna. So here's an opportunity for us to do our thing. Some I put it on the Solder Smoke blog, and at least one person has written saying that he has signed the petition. So get out there and try to, to save the, 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 the antenna that, uh, that, that discovered the, uh, the Big Bang's cosmic microwave background radiation. Uh, very good. Hey, one other thing I wanted to mention, it's kind of an in- interesting debate here. We, at, at the Vienna Wireless Society, we talk about uh, different theoretical things. We have lunch, we have, we have the makers group. And one thing we started talking about was how AM signals are detected. And I had always learned that, you know, it's basically an envelope detector. So you, what we would refer to as the envelope detector. But but some people got the idea that envelope detection is a bit of a fable, that it's not really true, that that's not really what happens. And so we got into a long discussion. And I, I had been inclined to agree with that kind of skepticism about whether envelope detection was really occurring. Um, and so what some people were saying was that, no, what actually happens is the AM signal comes in essentially with its own BFO in the form of the carrier. And then it just it's just a mixer, and you just take the carrier, and then you mix it with the sidebands in the signal that's coming in, and boom, you get audio out, and you just don't have to build the BFO. I, I went through it. We looked at it a lot of ways, and I, I came to the conclusion that that's, that's not right, that, that envelope detection really happens. It just, it just so happens that when you have a double sideband signal with the carrier, that the shape of the envelope matches the audio frequency 
especially if you just take one half of the envelope, you end up with, if you put a one kilohertz tone in, the shape of that half of the envelope will be audio at one kilohertz. So you just use the, the, um, the diode to chop off half of it, and then you use capacitors and filters to get rid of the RF, and you end up with one kilohertz audio, which is what, what you wanted. So it was an interesting uh, thing to go through, and it made me wonder, you know, well, it's a good thing, good thing for AM and good thing for phone that this was the case, that, you, that a simple detector like that would be enough to, just a simple diode would be enough to, to detect uh, AM signals and pull audio out of that um, that AM signal. So anyway, that was a, some interesting discussions that we had about that. All right, now let's see. I'm looking at the clock. We're at the 48-minute point. It's time to get to um, Solder Smoke Mailbag. I mentioned earlier uh, my colleague from the Vienna Wireless Society, Dean, KK4DAS. Uh, Dean has recently gotten interested in 10 meters like I am, but he's also gotten interested in DSB. A double sideband. So he's built a double sideband rig transmitter to go along with a, a, a direct conversion receiver at uh, at four ten meters, and he, he's working on that fine business. And in order to do this, to make sure that he's got it right, he is using kind of a newly available device. You know, we've talked about the tiny SA, the tiny spectrum analyzer. Many of us have the tiny spectrum analyzer. I have it. I tried to do this. What I was trying to do was to look at the carrier and the sidebands. The problem with the original tiny SA was that the um, the bandwidth resolution was too high. It was at 3KC. So you could only see signals that were like 3KCs apart. So when I would try to look at the carrier and the sidebands, it would just appear like a couple of blump blobs and lumps there on the thing. The, the Tiny SA Ultra, the new model that's out, has a resolution bandwidth of 200 hertz. So, so here, with, with this device, you can actually see the sidebands and the carrier, which is really cool. And Dean has used this to work on the, the carrier suppression in his double sideband suppressed carrier transmitter. So thanks for, uh, for testing that out and, you know, T, a tiny SA Ultra, I want one. That's another thing to put on your, your shopping list. And I think you can get it through the Amazon link in the upper right-hand portion of the page. Have Bezos sent it to you. Very good. Um, let's see, some other items in the man mailbag. We have uh, a message from John, AC2RL, talking about double sideband. He said that his Elmer was W3PHL, who was a, a real advocate of double sideband. It was on the air with double sideband. So uh, more DSB guys. Thank you, John, AC2RL, for telling us about W3PHL, the DSB guy. And I think there's stuff on the uh, on the web about that. AC3K reports that the inventor of the guitar, a guitar that I think Pete has used and it talks about, the Fender Stratocaster, the guy who invented this particular guy, particular guitar, was in fact a ham radio operator. Boom! The radio gods have spoken. The inventor of the Fender Stratocaster was W6DOE, Delta Oster Oscar Echo. Thanks for letting us know about that, AC3K. We got an email from AF8E. He was doing parks on the air. Uh, I, I worked him when he was doing parks on the air, and he was kind enough to say that my rig definitely had 
presence. I think he was pulling my leg a little bit, but he said we had presence. I think he was a solder smoke listener and heard us making fun of people who talk about presence and absence and all that. But anyway, he said that my rig had presence. So fine business. Thank you for that. Uh, another email from uh, from Alan F4IET. I got his call sign wrong before, but I got it right now, I think. He's another person working on double sideband. He's working on a double sideband rig, and he puts his mic into one of these a cylindrical cigar cases. You know, individual cigars often come in a little cylindrical metal case, and it's perfect for mounting the uh, the microphone. And so Alan has put the uh, the microphone in the cigar can. Fine business. Thanks for, for sharing that with us. Very, very interesting. Um, Daryl, N0DP. I talked to him on, on single sideband, I think on 20 meters. I get on with the, um, on 20 meters, I've had some really nice conversations. And I ran into Daryl, N0DP, and he is into homebrewing. And he asked me some really good questions about homebrewing. And I, I sent him some stuff. He was interested specifically in how to design and build crystal filters. And I sent him info on the G3UUR method. And I think on some of the stuff that, uh, that Wes has come up with on this, this subject. Our, our good friend, Steve, November 8, November, Mike, N8NM. Steve was down for some um, some repairs, some maintenance. He didn't go into details, but he says all is well and he is on the mend. And we hope he'll be at the workbench and at the operating table for Motors Ham Radio Contacts soon. Um, Rick, G6AKG is working on subharmonic mixers. We talked about this a while back. This is the the mixer, the circuit that allows you to run the oscillator at 3.5 megahertz and then receive both 80 meters and 40 meters uh, with it just by switching in an additional um, diode. It's called the subharmonic mixer circuit. Uh, Rick is is trying to do this using some logic chips, some 4066 chips, I think they are. Not my approach, not the way I would do it. I would just do it with the diodes, but that's just my kind of, you know, discrete analog preferences and so do it that way um we got an email from from paul hotel sierra zero zima zulu lima quebec over there in thailand he built the dc receiver but he was looking for something to follow up with after he built the direct conversion receiver so of course what would i recommend i recommended a double sideband transmitter to go along with it but but paul reports that dsb is not allowed in Thailand. Boo, hiss, boo to the Thailand authorities for suppressing homebrew creativity. Um, but uh, Paul is looking for an additional uh, project that he can follow up with. We got a nice email regarding another topic that we talk about at the Vienna Wireless Society. Steve, AB4I. One of the topics that we were talking about was Marconi's device Marconi's rig when he crossed the Atlantic that first time and Marconi said that he was using a coherer as the detector so some of the guys at the Vienna Wireless said wait a second how could that be could he be getting enough of a signal from across the Atlantic in like 1901 so that it would cause a coherer the 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 filings inside the coherer to cohere to a point that it would produce an audible CW signal? There was real skepticism about that. Steve, AB4I, who's done some really extensive research on this, confirmed the skepticism and said that 
Marconi was actually using a, uh, a detector that had been developed by uh, Jagadish Chandra Bose in India. And Marconi didn't really let on to the fact that he was using this detector, which was sort of a chemical version of a, of a diode, what we would call a diode today, uh, as the detector. So that was really interesting and uh, more reasons for some skepticism about uh, Senor Marconi. Uh, Eldon, KC5U, this was another contact that I did on the air. I, I had been talking on 20 meters with Victor Kilo 5 Quebec Delta on 20 meters. I aimed my uh, uh, hex beam at Australia long path, about 14,000 miles. Pretty cool. And I talked at a nice conversation with VK5 QD down there. And I, I knew that there were guys waiting to talk to him, so I didn't drone on too long. But as soon as I turned it over to him, Eldon KC5U talked to him. And Eldon told him in Australia that it was, of course, a thrill to work Australia. But Eldon said he had been listening to our previous QSO and that he, Eldon, had been a longtime listener of the Solder Smoke podcast and, uh, and found it really interesting to hear not only the guy in Australia, but listen to, to yours truly. And uh, so that was, that was really nice. And I thanked Eldon for that. I sent him an email. Uh, our friend in Portland, Cod, Todd, K7TFC, is building the direct conversion receiver that we're working on. Keep at it, Todd. We look forward to your input. It's not too late. We're just at the beginning of the project. So, so check it out. See if it's working fine for us. Um, I, and I'd like to thank Todd, too. He sent me some DIY marmalade that we have here. Thank you for sending that, Todd. Um, Tony, G4WIF, an old friend of the podcast, and another old friend, Ian, G3ROO, are making use of automotive relays. These are 12-volt relays. They look kind of robust. And Ian and Tony are using them for switching of antennas or at least switching of elements within antenna tuners and are having great success with this fine business i, I had looked at using this and uh, I, I i understand that some people have been skeptical incorrectly skeptical about their utility but uh, tony and ian are making good use of them fine business we like to hear that kind of innovation going on i i got an old i got an email from a really old friend dave wa1lbp uh, he is my fellow ambassador. Many years ago, I was the ambassador from the Dominican Republic in 73 Magazine's international column. And so I would send in little articles about what it was like to be a ham in the Dominican Republic. Dave was doing the same thing from the island of Okinawa in Japan. And uh, we've kept in touch. We were in the same organization in the State Department many years later. We're both retired now. And he sends in a note uh, from me about the similarities between Ugo Gernsback and Wayne Green. I have a blog post about that. You might want to check it out. <laughs> I think we both found different reasons for finding similarity between two different personalities from two different, very different epochs or, or eras in, in, in radio history. You know, one thing about the, the blog that's really kind of cool is that I often get comments from way back about comments on blog posts from, from, from way far back that guys will find the blog post and then say, wow, they'll post a comment. And that's what happened on two occasions here in the next, next month. Um, first of all, Scott, Victor Oscar One Delta Radio, wrote in, he saw the blog post about CF Rocky's passing. 
and he wrote that he too had been in C.F. Rocky's electronic class and had been very, very influenced by, by The Rock's approach to ham radio and home brewing. And then the second one has to do with a posting that I put up about Aurora and the Carrington event. I had posted a long time ago that the I, I kind of had witnessed a, a more modern uh, Aurora event. It was August 4th, 1972. I remembered it. I was about 13 years old at the time. And I remember seeing the lights over our location in suburban New York City. And I put this up there. And it's funny because a lot of people are kind of, they're, they're looking for, you could tell that they're Googling, trying to figure out this event. And they end up on my page. And at, at least 12 of them, have written in saying, wow, me too. That's the one I saw. Really cool that you found the event. All right, so it's August 4th, 1972, and it's up there. Just take a look on the blog. You'll see what I'm talking about. Finally, a very similar thing. I had, in kind of in a, in a fit of nostalgia, I had taken my entire novice radio log, all the stations that I worked as a novice. I think there were like 150 of them. And I, I wasn't able to put the complete log up on, on my blog, but I was able to list the call signs of the stations that I had worked as a novice, about 150 stations. So I put it up in a blog post, and I told people, if you recognize your call, please let me know. Send me an email. We'll talk about the experience. And a few guys did write back. I actually reestablished contact with my very second, the second contact I made, which was a, a kid who was in the same county with me there in Rockland County. He's still on the air, so that was really great. But then a, a completely unexpected one, Will, WN1SLG, he was feeling nostalgic about his novice days, and he turned to Google, and he said, let's see what happened if I just enter my call, my old novice call sign. So he plugs into Google, WN1SLG, and the Google machine leads him to the Solder Smoke blog, to my entry about my novice <laughs> adventures in ham radio which i thought was really cool so he was really pleased to see his call sign listed and i told him i said look send me the send me your email address and i will send you pictures of the logbook with your call sign in it from 1973 we were both about 14 years old both on the air for the first time it was just a few months after i got my license and so it, it was really cool to reestablish contact with will WN1SLG after all this time. All right, let's see. We're at the one-hour point. It's time to wrap this thing up. I'm really sorry Pete wasn't here, but Pete insisted that the show must go on, so here we are, and I hope everything works out, and uh, I hope Pete will be back with us for the next episode of Solder Smoke. I told him the uh, it's just not the same without him. I'm sure you guys will agree. So anyway, thanks to all for listening. 7-3 from Northern Virginia. Ooh, that's awesome. The Solder Smoke Podcast is produced once or twice a month using roadkill computers in an electronics workshop somewhere in the wilds of Northern Virginia. The podcast is available via iTunes and directly from our website, soldersmoke.com. Our blog, the Solder Smoke Daily News, is at soldersmoke.blogspot.com. Send email to soldersmoke, that's one word, at yahoo.com. Soldersmoke is listener-supported, and there are many ways you can help keep the podcast going. Please spread the word. Let your friends know about Soldersmoke, the podcast, and our blog. 
put links to the podcast and the blog on your websites. Buy a copy of the critically acclaimed book, Solder Smoke, Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics, available from lulu.com.